Chapter 3 of France and England in North America Part 3 La Salle Discovery of the Great West This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Esmond Castleton on Hudson, New York La Salle Discovery of the Great West by Francis Parkman, Jr. 1670-1672 The Jesuits on the Lakes The Old Missions and the New A Change of Spirit Lake Superior and the Copper Mines Saint-Marie La Pointe Michelmackinac Jesuits on Lake Michigan Alloway and Deblon the Jesuit fur trade. What were the Jesuits doing? Since the ruin of their great mission of the Hurons, a perceptible change had taken place in them. They had put forth exertions almost superhuman, set at naught famine, disease, and death, lived with the self-abnegation of saints, and died with the devotion of martyrs. And the result of all had been a disastrous failure. From no shortcoming on their part, but from the force of events beyond the sphere of their influence, a very demon of havoc had crushed their incipient churches, slaughtered their converts, uprooted the populous communities on which their hopes had rested, and scattered them in bands of wretched fugitives far and wide through the wilderness. They had devoted themselves in the fullness of faith to the building up of a Christian and Jesuit empire on the conversion of the great stationary tribes of the lakes, and of these none remain but the Iroquois, the destroyers of the rest, among whom, indeed, was a field which might stimulate their zeal by an abundant promise of sufferings and martyrdoms, but which, from its geographical position, was too much exposed to Dutch and English influence to promise great and decisive results. Their best hopes were now in the north and the west, and thither, in great part, they had turned their energies. Reports of the Jesuits We find them on Lake Huron, Lake Superior, and Lake Michigan, laboring vigorously as of old, but in a spirit not quite the same. Now, as before, two objects inspired their zeal, the greater glory of God and the influence and credit of the order of Jesus. If the one motive had somewhat lost in power, the other had gained. The epoch of the saints and martyrs was passing away, and henceforth we find the Canadian Jesuit less and less an apostle, more and more an explorer, a man of science, and a politician. The yearly reports of the missions are still, for the edification of the pious reader, filled with intolerably tedious stories of baptisms, conversions, and the exemplary deportment of neophytes, for these have become a part of the formula. But they are relieved abundantly by more mundane topics. One finds observations on the winds, currents, and tides of the Great Lakes, speculations on a subterranean outlet of Lake Superior, accounts of its copper mines, and how we, the Jesuit fathers are laboring to explore them for the profit of the colony. 
surmises touching the North Sea, the South Sea, the Sea of China, which we hope ere long to discover, and reports of that great mysterious river, of which the Indians tell us, flowing southward, perhaps to the Gulf of Mexico, perhaps to the Vermilion Sea, and the secrets whereof, with the help of the Virgin, we will soon reveal to the world. The Jesuit was as often a fanatic for his order as for his faith, and oftener, yet the two fanaticisms mingled in him inextricably. Ardently, as he burned for the saving of souls, he would have none saved on the upper lakes except by his brethren and himself. He claimed a monopoly of conversion, with its attendant monopoly of toil, hardship, and martyrdom. Often disinterested for himself, he was inordinately ambitious for the great corporate power in which he had merged his own personality, and here lies one cause, among many, of the seeming contradictions which abound in the annals of the order. Prefix to the relation of 1671 is that monument of Jesuit hardihood and enterprise, the map of Lake Superior, a work of which, however, the exactness has been exaggerated as compared with other Canadian maps of the day. While making surveys, the priests were diligently looking for copper. Father Leblanc reports that they had found it in greatest abundance on the Isle Menon, now Isle Royale. A day's journey from the head of the lake, on the south side, there is, he says, a rock of copper weighing from 600 to 800 pounds, lying on the shore where any who pass may see it. And he further speaks of great copper boulders in the bed of the river Antonagon. Saint-Marie de Sault. There were two principal missions on the upper lakes, which were, in a certain sense, the parents of the rest. One of these was Saint-Marie de Sault, the same visited by Dallier and Galonnet, at the outlet of Lake Superior. This was a noted fishing place, for the rapids were full of whitefish, and Indians came thither in crowds. The permanent residents were an Ojibwa band, whom the French called sauteurs, and whose bark lodges were clustered at the foot of the rapids, near the fort of the Jesuits. Besides these, a host of Algonquins of various tribes resorted thither in the spring and summer, living in abundance on the fishery and dispersing in winter to wander and starve in scattered hunting parties far and wide through the forests. The other chief mission was that of Saint-Esprit at La Pointe, near the western extremity of Lake Superior. Here were the Hurons, fugitives, twenty years before from the slaughter of their countrymen, and the Ottawas, who, like them, had sought an asylum from the rage of the Iroquois. Many other tribes, Illini, Potawatomis, Foxes, Menomines, Sioux, Assiniboines, Nistanu, and a multitude besides, came hither yearly to trade with the French. Here was a young Jesuit, Jacques Marquette, lately arrived from the Sault Marie. His savage flock disheartened him by its backslidings, and the best that he could report of the Hurons, after all the toil, and all the blood lavished in their conversion was that they still retain a little Christianity, while the Ottawas are far removed from the kingdom of God and addicted beyond all other tribes 
to foulness, incantations, and sacrifices to evil spirits. Marquette and André Marquette had heard from the Illini, yearly visitors at La Pointe, of the great river which they had crossed on their way, and which, as he had conjectured, flowed into the Gulf of California. He heard marvels of it also from the Sioux, who lived on its banks, and a strong desire possessed him to explore the mystery of its course. A sudden calamity dashed his hopes. The Sioux, the Iroquois of the West, as the Jesuits call them, had hitherto kept the peace with the expatriated tribes of La Pointe, but now, from some cause not worth inquiry, they broke into open war, and so terrified the Hurons and the Ottawas that they abandoned their settlements and fled. Marquette followed his panic-stricken flock, who, passing the Sault Marie and descending to Lake Huron, stopped at length. The Hurons and the Michilmackinac and the Ottawas at the great Manitoulin Island. Two missions were now necessary to minister to the divided bands. That of the Michilmackinac was assigned to Marquette, and that of the Manitoulin Island to Louis-André. The former took post at Point St. Ignace on the north shore of the Straits of Michilmackinac, while the latter began the mission of Saint-Simon at the new abode of the Ottawas. When winter came, scattering his flock to their hunting grounds, André made a missionary tour among the Nipissings and other neighboring tribes. The shores of Lake Huron had long been an utter solitude, wept of their denizens by the terror of the all-conquering Iroquois. But now that these tigers had felt the power of the French, and learned for a time to leave their Indian allies in peace, the fugitive hordes were returning to their ancient abodes. André's experience among them was the roughest. The staple of his diet was acorns and tripe de roche, a species of lichen, which, being boiled, resolved itself into a black glue, nauseous but not void of nourishment. At times, he was reduced to moss, the bark of trees, or moccasins, and old moose skins cut into strips and boiled. His hosts treated him very ill, and the worst of their fare was always his portion. When spring came to his relief, he returned to his post at Saint-Simon, with impaired digestion and unabated zeal. THE GREEN BAY MISSION Beside the Sault Marie, in the Michilmackinac, both noted fishing places, there was another spot no less famous for game and fish, and therefore a favorite resort of Indians. This was the head of the Green Bay of Lake Michigan. Here, and in adjacent districts, several distinct tribes had made their abode. The Menonomies were on the river which bears their name, the Potawatomis and the Winnebagoes were near the borders of the bay, and the Sacs on Fox River, the Mascoutins, Miamis, and Kickapoos on the same river, above Lake Winnebago, and the Otagamis, or Foxes, on a tributary of it flowing from the north. Green Bay was manifestly suited for a mission, and as early as the autumn of 1669, Father Claude Allouet was sent thither to found one. After nearly perishing by the way, he set out to explore the destined field of his labors, and went as far as the town of the Miscoutins. 
early in the autumn of 1670, having been joined by Dablon, superior of the missions on the upper lakes, he made another journey, but not until the two fathers had held a council with the congregated tribes at Saint-Francois-Xavier. For so they named their mission of Green Bay. Here, as they harangued their naked audience, their gravity was put to the proof, for a band of warriors, anxious to do them honor, walked incessantly up and down, aping the movements of the soldiers on guard before the governor's tent at Montreal. We could hardly keep from laughing, writes Deblon, though we were discoursing on the very important subjects, namely the mysteries of our religion and the things necessary to escaping from eternal fire. The fathers were delighted with the country which Deblon calls an earthly paradise, but he adds that the way to it is as hard as the path to heaven. He alludes especially to the rapids of Fox River, which gave the two travelers great trouble. Having safely passed them, they saw an Indian idol on the bank, similar to that which Dollier and Galinet found at Detroit, being merely a rock, bearing some resemblance to a man, and hideously painted. With the help of their attendants, they threw it into the river. Deblon expatiates on the buffalo, which he describes apparently on the report of others, as his description is not very accurate. Crossing Winnebago Lake, the two priests followed the river, leading to the town of the Muscutans and Miamis, which they reached on the 15th of September. These two tribes lived together within the compass of the same enclosure of palisades, to the number, it is said, of more than 3,000 souls. The missionaries, who had brought a highly colored picture of the Last Judgment, called the Indians to council and displayed it before them, while Alloway, who spoke Algonquin, harangued them on hell, demons, and eternal flames. They listened with open ears, beset him at night and day with questions, and invited him and his companion to unceasing feasts. They were welcomed in every lodge and followed everywhere with the eyes of curiosity, wonder, and awe. De Blanc overflows with praises of the Miami chief, who was honored by his subjects like a king, and whose demeanor toward his guests had no savor of the savage. Their hosts told them of the great river Mississippi, rising far in the north and flowing southward, they knew not whither, and of many tribes that dwelt along its banks. When at length they took their departure, they left behind them a reputation as medicine men of transcendent power. The Cross Among the Foxes In the winter following, Alloway visited the foxes, whom he found in extreme ill-humor. They were incensed against the French by the ill usage which some of their tribe had lately met when on a trading visit to Montreal, and they received the faith with shouts of derision. The priest was horror-stricken at what he saw. Their lodges, each containing from five to ten families, seemed in his eyes like seraglios, for some of the chiefs had eight wives. He armed himself with patience, and at length gained a hearing. Nay, he succeeded so well that when he showed them his crucifix, they would throw tobacco on it as an offering, and, on another visit, which he made with them soon after, he taught the whole village to make the sign of the cross. 
a war party was going out against their enemies. He bethought him of telling them the story of the cross and the emperor Constantine. This so wrought upon them that they all daubed the figure of a cross on their shields of bullhide, set out for war, and came back victorious, extolling the sacred symbol as a great war medicine. Thus it is, writes de Blanc, who chronicles the incident, that our holy faith is established among these people, and we have good hope that we shall soon carry it to the famous river called the Mississippi, and perhaps to the South Sea. Most things human have their phases of the ludicrous, and the heroism of these untiring priests is no exception to the rule. Trading with Indians The various missionary stations were much alike. They consisted of a chapel, commonly of logs, and one or more houses, with perhaps a storehouse and a workshop, the whole fenced with palisades and forming, in fact, a stockade fort, surrounded with clearings and cultivated fields. It is evident that the priests had need of other hands than their own and those of the few lay brothers attached to the mission. They required men, inured to labor, accustomed to the forest life, able to guide canoes and handle tools and weapons. In the earlier epoch of the missions, enthusiasm was at its height. They were served in great measure by volunteers, who joined them through devotion or penitence, and who were known as dons, or given men. Of late, the number of these had much diminished, and they now relied chiefly on hired men, or engagés. These were employed in building, hunting, fishing, clearing, and tilling the ground, guiding canoes, and, if faith is to be placed in reports current throughout the colony, in trading with the Indians for the profit of the missions. This charge of trading, which, if the results were applied exclusively to the support of the missions, does not, of necessity, involve much censure, is vehemently reiterated in many quarters, including the official dispatches of the Governor of Canada, while, so far as I can discover, the Jesuits never distinctly denied it, and on several occasions they partially admitted its truth. End of chapter 3 Recording by Paul Esmond Castleton on Hudson, New York